Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, where we examine the life and legacy of a cabinet member, I am joined by a special guest today for this episode. And my guest today is Joe from the Visiting the Presidents podcast. Joe, thank you so much for being here. Great to be here. Good to get to see you and talk to you. Get to talk presidents. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. We've been following each other on social media and commenting back and forth for a bit, but it's nice. And that's one of the things I love about the series to actually get a chance to talk with folks that I've been interacting with for a while. And especially when they're also like me, a fanatic about presidential history and love diving into that history. So thank you so much. I'm delighted. And so, Joe, before we get started, I just wanted to give you a chance to talk about Visiting the Presidents, what your podcast is, and where folks can find you if anybody in our audience hasn't visited your podcast already. Great. Yes. So my name is Joe Fakash, and I am a professor of history out here in Arizona, Central Arizona College. I did mainly political history when I was writing my dissertation and finishing my doctorate, but I now have to teach all of the different history. So the podcast really started during the pandemic as a kind of outlet where I, like you, have always just loved presidents, loved going to presidential sites when I get the opportunity. I'm from Ohio originally. And so I think a little bit homesickness made me start thinking about actually going through the different presidential sites. And I was like, why why am I not talking about this in a more formal setting? And so I created the podcast It's called Visiting the Presidents, and so far we've done, we're in the middle of, or towards the end of the second season. The first season was all about visiting presidential birthplaces. So going in order, the first half of those episodes would talk about the presidents as children, their birth, their parents, their siblings, their education, personality quirks. Season two has been talking about their homes, and so I get into their kind of political career, their presidency, and then the homes that they go to. And obviously with some of our more recent presidents that just have a lot more homes. And then season three will focus on their grave sites, their deaths. So that one is coming probably towards the end of this year. But um, yeah, excited to start getting into that as well. I also do presidential libraries. And then like you, Jerry, we find these different presidential sites that while not a formal home or site, They are related to a president in some way. So I will cover those as well. But the site is called Visiting the Presidents. You can find it as a website where you can look at the images. Or if you follow the podcast, just type in Visiting the Presidents. It's on all of the different podcast sites. I also have a Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you search for Visiting the Presidents, you'd find it there. 
Excellent. And I will be sharing information on my social media around the release of this episode. It'll also uh, be on the page for this episode. So you can link to it there as well. But Joe, I love the format of your podcast and the fact that, you know, you start it with kind of their early lives and then moving into their presidencies and then their later years. But then also just the fact that you can talk about the actual sites themselves and some of the nuances to them, talk through what they're doing in terms of interpreting the history for visitors. It's just, it's really fascinating and I greatly enjoy it. And I actually listened to a couple of episodes as prep for this episode. So... (laughs) And that actually gets to why I invited Joe to be on this episode, as our listeners know. And as Joe knows, this is going to be on James Monroe. And James Monroe was in the Madison cabinet in a couple of positions, as we'll talk about. But as with the James Madison episode of the Seat at the Table series, I kind of had a quandary because I already am covering these presidents so much for their presidencies and in the narrative series, it didn't seem like a real good use of time for anybody, including our listeners, to dive in like we do usually with the cabinet members who don't become presidents. And so we talked about basically this will be like with the Madison episode, we'll kind of hit the high levels of his leading his life leading up to joining the cabinet but we'll really focus in on that cabinet piece and do more of a deep dive there. And then at the end, kind of, again, high levels, wrapping up his post-cabinet career and his legacy. So that's where we're going. And I'm going to go ahead and get us started. Awesome. Because there is so much to talk about with James Monroe, as you know, Joe. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And so, starting at the beginning, James Monroe was born in Westmoreland County, Virginia, on April 28, 1758. He was the second child of Spence and Elizabeth Jones Monroe. And interestingly enough, and Joe, you actually know this because you covered both of these sites, Monroe was born only a few miles away from where the first president, George Washington, was born. Yeah, very, very cool site that um, you can find in the northern section, that neck of uh, Virginia, but very cool site that they've kind of added to lately, right? When I first visited, it you know, had a wayside and a flag, I believe, a marker maybe, and now they've like reconstructed the birthplace. So you can actually go inside the reconstructed birthplace. There's a few people, and Jerry and I know through the social media, who are sticklers about reproductions, but to me, it's really cool to get to see what his home life would have been like, what, what a home at that time would have been like. And right, like you said, just down the road from George Washington, but also not too far from James Madison. Absolutely. And that's the 
the fascinating thing about these early presidents, so many of their sites are so close, so you can plan an entire trip to see numerous sites in the same visit. For sure. Absolutely. Well, the Monroe family actually immigrated from Fowlis, Scotland, to the British colonies in North America in 1637, first settling in Maryland, then after a decade, they moved to Virginia. So his maternal family were more recent immigrants as Elizabeth's father had come over to Virginia from Wales and was a successful architect. Spence and Elizabeth married in 1752, and Spence is described as a moderately successful planner as well as a carpenter. So growing up, James would likely have heard about the growing discontent between the colonists and the British government as Spence Monroe signed a pledge in 1766 to boycott British imported goods until the Stamp Act was repealed. But even more than his father, who passed away in 1774 when James was 16, Monroe's uncle, Joseph Jones, quickly grew to be a prominent leader in the Patriot cause in Virginia, and was described by Monroe biographer Gary Hart as, quote, the formative early political influence on James Monroe's life. So, though it likely began informally at home, as was the case back in those days, Monroe's formal education began when he enrolled at Campbelltown Academy. And one of Monroe's classmates at the academy was none other than John Marshall, who was the man who ended up becoming Secretary of State and then Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, which we've also covered in this series. And these two became close friends. And again, it's interesting, like with these early cabinet members and early presidents, how many people just end up in that web of connections right and you don't always think of their lives overlapping like that but then when you think about how many of our leaders came from in this case the same colony and then state they would have had to know each other and i'm struck like when you get to talking about william seward down the road to me i never really thought about him being in the same area as millard fillmore and and these people having intersecting lives you always kind of think of them really bifurcated or at least i do and in the case of in the you know when we're talking about john marshall and uh, james monroe yeah it would have been just bewildering it's bewildering to us to think about how you know they would go both go on to have these really enhanced legacies but just be normal kids and you know have the same kind of tensions and rivalries and that kind of thing that, that we would have but yeah it's really cool Exactly. And and the fact that these interactions, you know, they continue on throughout their lives in various degrees and various areas. And so it's just, it, it really is fascinating. So in 1774, as advised by his uncle, Joseph Jones, both Monroe and Marshall continued their education at the College of William and Mary. And this put Monroe at the capital of Virginia at the time that tensions between the colonists and the British government were heating up. And so especially having his uncle as a prominent leader at this time, one can only imagine the experience for this young student. And in the spring of 1776, rather than continuing his education, Monroe and another classmate opted to enlist in the 3rd Virginia Infantry. Soon, Monroe's unit marched out of Virginia to link up with the Continental Army under the command of yet another president, General George Washington, in New York, because the Revolutionary War had begun. The 3rd Virginia joined up with Washington in mid-September 1776 in Harlem Heights on Upper Manhattan, just in time to be a part of the Battle of Harlem Heights. Now, 
Being attached to Washington's forces also meant that Monroe was present for the retreat into New Jersey and that famous crossing of the Delaware River around Christmas 1776, and his presence was later memorialized in the 1851 painting of this event by Emanuel Lutz. At the Battle of Trenton, Monroe was shot in the shoulder, and the wound was severe enough that, without the swift intervention of Dr. John Riker, the young man would have likely passed away right there. And again, like it's one of those things, you know, speculating what would have happened, how history would have gone so much different if James Monroe had died right there. And the, you know, I always talk to students about just how primitive our medicine was, and the availability of having a really skilled doctor to help with a situation like that really could have gone a million different directions, but none of them great. He really was lucky. <laughs> like you, you think he, he really had to be pretty blessed in order to survive that. Yeah, absolutely. Crazy. Well, and, and even decades later, I, I just saw that the James Garfield historic site, they were posting today about listing all of the doctors who would have been better than the medical treatment that <laughs> Garfield got when he was For shot. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, and when you talk about Andrew Jackson and these men that ha- carried the bullets in their body and that that was in some cases safer. Yeah. than trying to remove it just because of the uh, germs that would have gotten inside of you and the different ways it could get infected. Thank God we live in the day we do. But yeah, certainly a kind of sliding doors moment where you think, what if James Monroe hadn't survived here? You know, <laughs> yeah. what, what would have happened? Yeah, what could have been? Exactly. I mean, so much. And as we'll see, he had such an impact. But for history, he did survive. And for his bravery in the battle, Washington elevated Monroe to the rank of captain and sent him back to Virginia to recruit more soldiers for the army. Monroe, however, failed to pull together a company of his own and returned to the army in August 1777 to serve as an aide to Lord Sterling, eventually becoming his aide-de-camp. Monroe participated in the Battle of Brandywine, where he tended to a wounded Marquis de Lafayette, someone who would become a lifelong friend. And again, one of those figures in history that they are just all in the same circles. And so he served in Brandywine as well as the Battle of Germantown. Now, during the Battle of Monmouth, Monroe was elevated to an adjutant general and led a force to repel a British attack. And Monroe would continue to serve with the Continental Army through the fall of 1778 before making his way back to Virginia, where, in the spring of 1779, the Virginia Assembly commissioned him as a lieutenant colonel. He would ultimately serve as a military aide to Virginia Governor Thomas Jefferson. Again, another person has been featured on this series, another person who goes on to the presidency, but he served as the military aide to Jefferson. And then in June 1780, he was appointed military commissioner and charged with establishing a communications link between the southern branch of the Continental Army and Virginia's government. But before long, the war would be over, and Monroe would be back to civilian life. But as we're going to see, his service to the public was just beginning. Because Monroe had originally thought of traveling to Europe at the end of the Revolutionary War, but in 1782, he was elected to the Virginia General Assembly. This period in Monroe's life would prove crucial for his future career 
as he would establish a strong relationship with Jefferson during this time. And Jefferson became kind of a mentor to him as he did with some other figures in American history. But with Monroe, he would really help to guide him in his political and personal development. And Monroe was soon elected to the Virginia Executive Council, which he served with, yet again, his friend John Marshall. And <laughs> again, these folks just keep on popping up. Yeah. Interspersed, you know, um, overlapping is crazy. Oh, yes. I mean, all these stories intersecting and overlapping. But, you know, he served in the Virginia Executive Council with John Marshall. And then in June 1783, Monroe was elected to serve in the Confederation Congress. Now, he would serve in Congress for three terms, and as noted by Gary Hart, quote, among political leaders during this period, Monroe was on the forefront of those who viewed things nationally rather than merely as citizens of individual states. And this is important and interesting because we really have, you know, in in this Confederation period and even long into the early Republic, there is this tension, you know, is this just a collection of separate states or is this one union? And this continues on to the Civil War, but for Monroe's part, he sees things on a national level. Yeah, I always talk to students about how it really was um, for some of the people who had gone through the revolution that there was just this understanding that we'll get together when we have a opponent, when we have an enemy that we're all on board with facing. But the rest of it, like you, you have no say in what we do. Uh, you know, if I, I always ask students, you know, living out here in Arizona, how much do you have in common personally with somebody living in Maine, with somebody living in Alaska, with somebody in Florida right now, other than that we're Americans, right? So how would they, as colonists, not knowing about a kind of more globalized colonies or states, you know, what would you? have in common with people who you might never interact with. Monroe will, but for the average Virginian, they'd say like, okay, yeah, leave us alone. Virginians will know better for Virginians. And we always take for granted, I think, this idea that of course we'll come along with the idea that we're a large federalized country. But clearly, like you're saying, that was not the case. There were going to be people who said, yeah, when we're we're at war, we'll get together, but leave us alone when we're not, like, we, we, we will take care of ourselves. Absolutely. Well, and, and it's interesting, and especially thinking of that time when, you know, we think of our modern day and there are those regional differences and, you know, different lives, different everyday lives across the nation. But this is even before a time of mass communication that you know we have more in common now than we would have in those times they really were it felt if they even knew where some of these states were you know they really knew nothing about them except what somebody may have told them or what they if they read if they read period but if they read it like in a newspaper or a book or something but there really was this possibility that it all could have just split apart. And then you get people and you understand why it didn't with leaders like Monroe, who were more traveled and were interacting with folks and starting to see things in a national level and then being able to bring that back to 
Virginia and saying, this is why it's important. And so Monroe, he saw as a key component of this national vision, the extension of the United States beyond the Appalachian Mountains. And thus, in the fall of 1784, he traveled through the western portions of New York down to the Northwest Territory. And so with Virginian leaders, and especially, you know, you see this with Monroe, but also with Jefferson and Madison, this understanding of this westward expansion as being important for the development of the nation. And so Monroe is right there with them. Monroe's tenure in Congress at this point would also establish another key relationship in his life, his on-again, off-again friendship with James Madison. And we will definitely be talking a, a bit more about that as we go along. But Monroe's interest in foreign affairs would also grow during this time, unfortunately due both to his financial strain and some health issues, he was unable to go through with his plans to go abroad at this time. But though he was unable to establish his diplomatic credentials, Monroe did begin thinking about establishing a family. Because with the Congress meeting in New York City, Monroe made the acquaintance of Elizabeth Courtright of New York, and the two were wed on February 16, 1786, at her father's home. And shortly after this, Monroe resigned his seat in Congress, and he moved his new bride, who at this point was now pregnant, to his uncle's home in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Their first child, a daughter named Elizabeth, but was called Eliza by the family, was born in December 1786. And they would have two other children, but the next, one that was born, James Spence Monroe, he was not born until 1799 and only lived 16 months. So that, you know, and we've talked in this series about child mortality and, you know, you hear instances of this. Unfortunately, James Spence Monroe did not live long. Their last child was a daughter named Maria, who was born in April 1802. It's always just striking to think about how many of them dealt with that grief. And again, we kind of just take it for granted. And, you know, when we give off the, the stats about their families, just so many of them would have been struck by, you know, having that, that mourning or, but also going into it understanding that their children might not survive. And so, you know, Thomas Jefferson, you know, how many children they lost and just something that you know, we don't have to deal with as much in terms of, you know, just a threat kind of hanging over you. But 16 months is a long time to grow attached to a child and then lose it. And, you know, that, that you got to imagine just what it might've done to their psyche and how it impacted their decisions too. Absolutely. Well, and, and also for the mothers, Pregnancy was so risky at that point. You know, we talked about in the John Marshall episode, you know, that his wife, she struggled so much and just her physical health continued to diminish pregnancy after pregnancy. And so, you know, it, it was definitely a much riskier prospect in those days again, without modern medicine, without those developments. And so, yeah, child mortality, the risk to the mother, it was a constant presence in their lives. After leaving Congress, James was admitted to the bar so that he could begin a legal practice. But one thing about Monroe, he usually doesn't stay out of politics too long. With the Constitutional Convention completing its work, the new plan of government was sent to the states for ratification, 
and Monroe was elected as a delegate to the Virginia Ratification Convention. So we discussed this in a bit more detail in Madison's pre-presidency episode, but Monroe actually joined the anti-federalist forces at the convention, and he made several speeches critical of the Constitution and ultimately voted against ratification. But this put Monroe in the minority because a majority of the Virginia Convention ultimately voted to ratify the Constitution. And so it's interesting, and again, we get to one of those places, you know, politics at the time weren't necessarily clear-cut. Even though Monroe understood things in a national sense, he still looked at the Constitution and this plan of government and said, mm, this, this may not be right for us. So it, it's interesting to see how, how these views develop in folks. But following that convention, you know, the, and with the Constitution coming into effect, Monroe threw his hat in the ring to be one of the first members of the new federal House of Representatives. Now, unfortunately for him, fellow Virginian James Madison was also in that district thanks to Governor Patrick Henry, because Henry had it out for Madison and made sure to draw the congressional district so that both of them would be in the same district and have to go up against one another. <laughs> Gotta love Patrick Henry. <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> Both Madison and Monroe, you know, they really launched into this campaign. They ran a vigorous campaign, but they also managed to maintain a cordial relationship with one another in this outreach, you know, and we have these accounts of them, you know, they'll deliver competing speeches but then take some time and just catch up or, you know, if the weather was bad, just seek shelter together. Personally, they were able to still get along, even though they were competing politically. Now, Madison would ultimately come out the victor, but it doesn't seem like there were really hard feelings and they went back to a friendly correspondence. Now, it was around this time that Thomas Jefferson was returning from being abroad and Monroe was making plans to move his family to Albemarle County. Initially, they would move to Charlottesville, and this geographic proximity would help to facilitate a closer relationship with Jefferson, whose estate, Monticello, was in Albemarle County as well. And meanwhile, Monroe was chosen by the Virginia General Assembly as one of the state's U.S. Senators in December 1790. Now, as political factions were forming around this time, Monroe found himself aligning with the anti-administration faction that would come to be known as the Democratic Republicans. And it's of really no surprise to anybody, Secretary of State Jefferson, Representative James Madison, they were also key leaders in this new growing faction. And they would start to align and work together and develop their ideologies together. Really, this is you can say despite, but also perhaps because of his political alignment, when France requested the recall of the Federalist Gouverneur Morris as U.S. Minister to France in May 1794, President Washington turned to Monroe to assume the post. Now, Monroe was a noted supporter of the French Revolution, as were many folks who became Democratic Republicans. And it was felt that he would be able to better establish relations or establish better relations with the government in power than his predecessor. Because, you know, Governor Morris, staunch Federalist, he was really against 
the revolution. So let's send somebody who's more aligned with that thinking and known to be, and hopefully that would help to improve U.S.-French relations. So Monroe and his family traveled to Paris for him to take up the post. And one of his first actions when he got on the scene was to deliver an address to the French National Assembly, which spoke of, quote, fraternity and union between the two peoples. And this was very well received in Paris. Everybody loved it. The British government was not quite so happy when they heard about this. And when word got back to the States, the Washington administration wasn't, they're kind of, oh, that's a little, it's going a little too far, but I guess we'll leave him there for now. With the conclusion of the Jay Treaty in November 1794, Monroe found himself having to defend U.S. policy that seemed to be more favorable to the British when Monroe, in fact, disagreed with the policy and the treaty. So this put him in a very difficult place. He really disagreed with this treaty, but because he was a representative of the Washington administration, he had to argue for it with the French. And increasingly, Monroe and the Washington administration grew apart, and in November 1796, he received his letter of recall. The president and his cabinet had finally said, this guy is not with us. We need to get him out of there before he does major damage to our foreign policy. Upon his return to the U.S., Monroe wrote a 407-page defense of his conduct while serving as U.S. Minister to France, in which he attacked the, by this point, retired President George Washington and his administration for being too pro-French to the detriment of American relations with the French Republic. And this defense caused a rift between Washington and Monroe that was not mended before Washington's passing in 1799. So this is one of those instances, and we do see as party politics become more prevalent in the American government, you see some of these personal relationships breaking off, and Washington and Monroe were one of those. You know, and you think of like the two of them and how they were really more different generations, right? And how, you know, losing his father, like you just, I always just took a kind of view that he must have been somewhat of a father figure to not just James Monroe, but to the rest of our country. And to have that kind of stark of a difference politically, but then letting it, as you say, go into the personal where it does divide them as contemporaries and and people, you know, trying to frame our government in its first decade, like a very impactful time. But yeah, I was struck when I read, I believe it was the McGrath book about how they like rebuffed James Monroe at several points when, you know, he would go by the uh, Mount Vernon and think about like, well, what if I went in and instead just keep going and yeah, it's 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 pretty it's a pretty sad story when you think of like the heroism of crossing the Delaware together and then to where it ends where I don't imagine it wouldn't have been a personally like grievous moment for Monroe when he, when he finds out about Washington passing away suddenly, yeah. right? Like just out of nowhere. Yeah, it came very sudden and you know, and you also have to wonder if he had known that Washington was going to pass away, would he have made more of an effort to try and mend those fences? Because you also see, and I think it's it's arguable, his presidency, he really does 
take that Washington example of the presidency to heart. You know, you see Monroe carrying out tours of the nation like Washington did. You see him becoming kind of this rallying figure like George Washington was. And it's just, it really is sad that there was that rift between them, that politics drew them apart. And also Monroe's, and and we'll see more as we we're going along, but Monroe was definitely somebody who was ambitious, you know, as was the case in the time, he wouldn't have publicly said that, but you don't write a 407 page defense of your conduct. If you don't have some ambitions in mind and want to make sure that your reputation is clear, he really had in mind that he wanted more. He wanted to go on in politics. And unfortunately, to do that, he had to attack Washington and his administration. And what strikes me too is that he, I think Monroe kind of had this idea that like, you know who I am, right? Like we serve to get, like I put my life on, on the line. So why would my loyalty be questioned? Why would any, why would you come for me in a kind of personal manner mm. when like, as we learn, you know, there is this kind of politics, but I am struck too by the idea that Washington and some of the early founders really didn't anticipate us having political factions and being politically divided. And so there was this kind of idea of like catching up, right? We recognize, of course, like there's probably not a way for us all to be in the same country and not divide ourselves in some fashion. But, you know, I think to, to them, there, there was this idea that like we could be above politics. We could be above this kind of fighting or, you know, whatever it might kind of boil down to, but it's a bit human, I think, to, yeah. to have it devolve the way it did. Absolutely. Well, and I also like that point that you brought up about Monroe and kind of this this personal, you know, don't don't you know who I am? You know, and that's part of the development of these political factions is also this very personal, well, why don't you agree with me? You know who I am. Why aren't you trusting me on this? And we'll definitely see this play out in Monroe's story as we go along, because it it definitely comes back time and time again that he gets to this, you know, it's an affront to him that to be challenged by somebody. So upon his return to Albemarle County, Monroe bought land adjacent to Thomas Jefferson's estate, Monticello, and settled into this new location. And soon enough, he was back to politics again. Monroe does not stay out of politics for long as he was elected as governor of Virginia. It would be while he was serving as governor when enslaved individuals in the Virginia Tidewater launched a revolution that would come to be known as Gabriel's Rebellion. And we talked about this during the Adams series. This was put down and Monroe played a key role in coordinating with state and local officials to put down this uprising. So after serving three one-year terms as governor, Monroe left office and returned home. But again, wouldn't be there for long because Thomas Jefferson, who was now president of the United States, called on him to undertake another diplomatic mission to France, this time to negotiate the purchase of New Orleans and the Floridas. That was all they wanted, but as we know, they got much more than that. 
So given the warm reception Monroe had experienced during his tenure as U.S. minister, Jefferson really wanted to capitalize on this because at the very least, it was felt in thinking of that westward expansion and thinking of the Mississippi River Basin, we needed New Orleans. Jefferson knew, and so many folks knew, whoever controlled New Orleans would control the West. And at that point, the U.S. had experienced difficulties with Spanish officials closing off the port to American shipping, and that was key to getting produce products down the Mississippi. And so Jefferson knew, okay, well, Monroe was really liked by the French, so he's the person that can go and finalize this deal. As an expression of his personal confidence in Monroe, President Jefferson wrote to him, quote, Some men are born for the public. Nature, by fitting them for the service of the human race on a broad scale, has stamped them with the evidences of destination and their duty. So it's almost like this this larger calling for him. He's like, you've got this great mission. You are destined for this. And with that, Monroe made his return to Paris, where he joined the current U.S. Minister to France, Robert Livingston, in negotiating with the French government, headed by First Consul Napoleon Bonaparte. Soon enough, they had secured the Louisiana Purchase Treaty, which doubled the size of the U.S. with all the lands of the Mississippi watershed now under American control. Following this diplomatic victory, Monroe was instructed to proceed to London to negotiate with the British government on the matter of impressment of American sailors by the Royal Navy. So this was actually supposed to be a temporary assignment, but with the resignation of Rufus King as U.S. Minister to Britain, Monroe then moved into the post of the permanent U.S. diplomatic representative in London. But unfortunately, he made little progress on negotiating on the impressment issue. And so Monroe went back to Paris and then to Madrid on another mission to negotiate the acquisition of the Floridas, which, though the Jefferson administration insisted West Florida was a part of the Louisiana Purchase, everybody else said no, it wasn't, and it remained in Spanish control. He made no progress after six months in Madrid, so Monroe returned to London again to try his hand with the British once more. And it's it, this is an interesting point in his diplomatic career because he's just going from you know one European capital to the other and really not making any headway with anybody after the Louisiana Purchase Treaty. By this point, William Pinckney had been sent by the Jefferson administration as a special diplomatic agent to assist Monroe with the negotiations with the British. But Monroe looked at this and he's like, why are you sending this guy? I'm here. You don't trust me? Again, that idea of he's being challenged. Now, even though Monroe kind of saw this and was kind of, why aren't you just trusting me to negotiate? The two did get along well. They worked well together. And they were able to conclude the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty with Britain by the end of 1806. The problem was this treaty did not address impressment. Monroe and Pinckney were like, this is a start. And they wrote back to the administration and explained as such, you know, this is a start. This goes ahead and at least deals with a couple of minor issues. Then we can come back to the negotiating table, talk about impressment. 
but the Jefferson administration, and in particular Jefferson and Secretary of State Madison, did not see it this way. They had been told, negotiate on impressment. If impressment's not part of the deal, we don't want it. So they basically took this treaty that Monroe and Pinckney had worked so hard to get and put it into a drawer, did not even send it to the Senate, and it faded away. So all their work was for nothing, and Jefferson and Madison killed the treaty. When Monroe learned of this, he turned over the London mission to Pinckney and returned home to Virginia. Unlike his first return from France, Monroe found himself on the outs with his friends Jefferson and Madison this go-round because he took this very personally. He, he was like, of all people to not trust me, you guys know me. We've known each other for decades. Why? And he felt it was an embarrassment. You know, they were saying the work that he had done was not good enough. And thus, when the 1808 presidential election came around, Representative John Randolph of Roanoke and other anti-administration Democratic Republicans put forward Monroe as an alternative to Jefferson's preferred successor, Secretary of State James Madison. Now, as we know, Madison would ultimately be elected. Monroe really didn't stand a chance here, and he would turn his attention to personal matters as he attempted to sell part of his property in Virginia to finance improvements to his Highland estate in Albemarle County. Meanwhile, Monroe's daughter, Eliza, married George Hay in September 1808, and with Hay becoming part of Monroe's family, he also became a close advisor to his father-in-law moving forward. And in the latter part of 1809, Monroe began to make overtures to Madison and his supporters to make a reconciliation. Because at this point, Madison was president, he was in power, Monroe knew if he was going to get any further along in politics, he was going to have to mend those fences. And so in May 1810, he traveled to Washington and met with the president and members of his administration. By that point, Monroe had already been reelected to the Virginia House of Delegates. And in January 1811, he was elected to another term as governor. This term, however, would be quite short because in March, Madison sent an intermediary to Monroe to see if he would be willing to take up the post of Secretary of State. And so this was a big deal. You know, this was Monroe moving into the position that Madison had been in when he became president. So this was seen as a big deal. But Monroe also had to weigh this carefully because he had just become governor again. And he was worried that there may be political backlash on him for leaving his post so soon. But political leaders in Virginia were like, look, you need to get back in with Madison. So take this, you know, it'll be fine. And once he saw, okay, this is really a good move. This is what I need to do. He agreed on April 2nd, 1811, Monroe resigned as governor and made his way to Washington, D.C. to take charge of the State Department. And he assumed office as the seventh secretary of state on April 6th, 1811. Now, as we've noted with discussing other secretaries of state in the early republic, this looked a bit different than what we're used to nowadays when we think of the State Department. We think of the State Department as being all about foreign relations, but at the time, it was tasked with handling all correspondence with American diplomats abroad, as well as foreign ministers in the U.S., 
issuing passports, sending reports to Congress, supervising the patent office, the census, facilitating the printing and distribution of laws and the preservation of public papers and other domestic administrative functions. Pretty much most of the communication of the government ran through the State Department, and they were also handling correspondence with judicial officers, U.S. district attorneys, U.S. marshals, doing all of this with one chief clerk, seven clerks, and a messenger. That was it. It's remarkable, you know, certainly the way that, you know, obviously an outgrowth of just having four cabinet officials at the beginning, but also just not knowing what we were getting into in terms of the size and scope of what would be expected of this new federal government. And then, yeah, who does take on these different tasks? It had to have been pretty remarkable, but it does seem like Secretary of State was like the ad hoc, like, if it's something happening, you know, we're going to put it under your under your watch. But yeah, just what a crazy amount of responsibilities that would have been going on. Absolutely. It, it's, it was definitely a huge amount of responsibility. And also the fact that generally the Secretary of State was seen as kind of being one of those key advisors to the president. So being so involved in policy while also having to make all this bureaucracy happen, it's just, it's staggering to think about. Even though the State Department and other government agencies were responsible for making policy, there were really no policy folks in-house at the time. As noted by historian Leonard White, quote, the secretary was the only one who could exercise judgment on policy matters. But thankfully for Madison, his new secretary came well-equipped to do so. So the biggest issues that were waiting for Monroe upon assuming office were dealing with the situations with Britain and France, because relations with both of those nations was poor at the time. The situation with Britain was a bit worse than with France, but it was, you know, it was neck and neck, really. By the time Monroe assumed office, the administration had already acted on the Cador letter, which was a letter from the French foreign minister that had alluded to the French government reversing its decrees, which prohibited American neutral trade, with the caveat that, as was the case with Macon's Bill Number 2, the U.S. would impose non-importation on Britain if they didn't likewise go ahead and reverse their anti-neutral trade policies. And so... The Madison administration, once they heard of the Cador letter, they were like, okay, we got what we wanted from the French. Let's go ahead and impose non-importation on the British. They didn't realize Napoleon does as Napoleon does. And he only said, we maybe do that. And then didn't. And instead just kept on you know, being a hindrance to American neutral trade. And so this was a problem. But unlike his predecessor, Monroe was not hesitant in bringing up this awkward position that the administration was in, in his first meeting with the French minister to the U.S., Louis Soulier. Monroe would adopt a tactic of playing Soulier and the British minister to the U.S., Augustus Foster, indirectly against one another. So he'd go to one, he'd kind of be rough and you like, okay, well, what are you going to do for me? And then he'd go to the other, okay, well, maybe I'll work with the French. Maybe I'll work with the British. He would really play them off against one another. 
Sautier tended to give more than Foster had the leverage to do, but with both, Monroe was not afraid to go toe-to-toe. After spending some of the summer back home in Albemarle, the Monroes returned to Washington in the fall of 1811 and settled into, quote, a three-story brick house on I Street and got involved in the capital social scene. That fall would bring news of the Battle of Tippecanoe in the West, and it seemed increasingly as fall gave way to winter that war was coming. Indeed, by this point, Monroe, who had previously advocated finding a diplomatic solution to the issues with Britain, was instead arguing for war. Monroe would act as the go-between for the administration with the ascendant Warhawk faction in Congress who, after Madison's annual message in November, wanted assurances if the president was in fact favor of war, if the British would not agree to some accommodation for grievances. Meanwhile, the Secretary of State was approached by an agent claiming to have access to papers from an Irish-born former British official, John Henry, who had been sent by the Governor General of Canada in 1809 to coordinate with Federalists in New England. And it was hoped, so Henry's mission in coordinating with these Federalists was hopefully stirring them up against the government. Now, this effort really fizzled out, but Henry was like, hey, I've got these papers. I really need some money. Madison administration, would you like these papers? (laughs) And they're available to you. I'll be glad to give them to you for a price. The price was (laughs) $50,000. And this was, quote, the entire contingent fund for the State Department. And Madison and Monroe agreed to pay it. And on March 9th, Madison sent these letters to Congress. But instead of Congress seeing this as an important recognition of a plot against the government, most of them just saw it as a waste of funds, especially since Madison had ordered the redaction of the names of individuals in the letters prior to handing them over. And the Henry letter scandal, it is just one of the oddest points in the Madison presidency. It's like, what what were you trying to do with this? And $50,000? Really? <laughs> well, and it, it does give you insight into just how, you know, certainly people felt like they were able to have those kinds of deals and just wonder what other shenanigans people were trying to pull and you know, how much of that they had to just kind of Perry away, but yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but still, despite this minor scandal, the march to war continued on. And after a 90 day embargo was put in place on April 4th in order to allow American merchant ships the opportunity to get safe harbor before the actual war began, on June 1st, 1812, Madison sent a special message to Congress requesting a declaration of war against Great Britain which they then granted, and on June 18th, 1812, the U.S. went to war with Britain. Monroe hoped that with the coming of war, he could actually return to the military. So he started work, quote, to recruit a volunteer force of Virginians and debated whether to, quote, temporarily resign from the State Department and return to the cabinet if public opinion invited it. The problem, however, was that just as... And and so this is one of these things with the reconciliation between Madison and Monroe. You know, there were talks of, well, maybe he could, maybe Monroe could be appointed as 
you know, a governor of the Louisiana territory, or maybe he could be appointed to this diplomatic post or something. Monroe was clear, Secretary of State or nothing. I need an important post. And likewise, with this, he felt he needed a key command if he was going to return to the military. But unfortunately for Monroe, there were plenty of other officers who had seniority over him. And they would have been none too pleased for this upstart to jump over them and be one of, if not the key leader in the military. As summer gave way to fall and reports of the first failures of the war came trickling back in to Washington, President Madison did consider appointing Monroe to a field command as the replacement for General William Hull in the West. However, the president ultimately settled on William Henry Harrison and told Monroe that, quote, you would carry with you the confidence of all. But how is it to be brought about? The other more senior officers would be upset if he was appointed over them. It just, it gets to that point, you know, yes, you think that you're so important, but there are other people who are before you who are more senior. You definitely get insight into Monroe's, like, certainly inflated sense of self, like, and some of it warranted, but also just how governed he was by this idea that he was deserving of certain things. And, you know, come hell or high water, he's going to get them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and that, yeah. And I mean, I can't, again, I, I think he's all too human in, in that, but you just get the sense of how, how much those kinds of things, titles, honorifics would, would have really mattered to a, to a person like Monroe. Absolutely. And and it really speaks to this idea of honor at the time. And you see figures like Monroe that really take it to heart and they're not going to accept second best. They want what they feel that they're due. You know, going back to what you had said about him wanting this title or wanting secretary of state or nothing. Like, I do wonder how much of it was this notion that like he held the cards, right? Madison mm-hmm. needed him more than he needed being Secretary of State, and so like if you're gonna if you're gonna ask me to be in your cabinet, like yeah, you're you're going to have to make up for what you had done before, right? Like you know, make up for for the slights and that kind of thing. So yeah, it is interesting to think about how, how much that that would have mattered to him. And again, it's also one of those points, you know, if Monroe had ended up in a field command. And as we're going to talk about, you know, as time went on, Monroe became this key advisor, key right-hand person for Madison in some pretty dark times. And if he had gotten that field command and been away, what might have happened? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because Monroe, at this point, he had more than enough on his hands to think about, you know, what was next or a field command because... At this point, the Patriot War had been set in motion. This was actually one of the things that Monroe inherited from his predecessor. So basically, General George Matthews and Colonel John McKee had been given a mission by the government to take East Florida from Spanish control in an encouraged insurrection along the same lines of the West Florida Rebellion, which had actually worked in 1810. But... At this point, you know, things weren't going well. It wasn't as smooth of a process as West Florida had been. And in late October 1811, in negotiations with British minister to the U.S. Augustus Foster, Monroe 
had candidly admitted that the U.S. had ambitions to take East Florida. But the taking of Amelia Island in mid-March 1812 by these forces assembled by Matthews and McKee was a step too far. Basically, this was a blatant land grab. There was no trying to pretend that these were you know, people in East Florida that were rising up. These were actual U.S. military soldiers and militia from Georgia who were coming and taking Spanish-held territory. And the administration realized, okay, we've got to back away from this one. Thus, on April 4th, 1812, Secretary of State Monroe wrote to Matthews admonishing him for, quote, a forceful wrestling of the province from Spain and revoking his official authority. This was transferred to the then governor of Georgia to complete a negotiation for an end to the American occupation of East Florida. Now, trying to hedge their bets, they also included in those instructions, you know, we'll we'll negotiate our withdrawal, but you don't have to be too quick about that withdrawal, just in case anything happens and, you know, the Spanish... Take your time. <laughs> yeah, just take your time. The Spanish may decide... They really don't want to be there or that things have collapsed or whatever. Just, you know, we trust you. We trust you. And it would take another two years before the Patriot cause would completely collapse. And meanwhile, the administration just, it it was that classic deny. Okay, no, we, we didn't really intend to take East Florida. We would have taken it if it had come to us, but we didn't really do that. So, as the War of 1812 began, it became quickly apparent that there was no confidence in the incumbent Secretary of War, William Eustace. And there was one defeat after another in the planned three-pronged invasion of Canada. And by the end of the year, it was time for Eustace to go. President Madison had been considering the matter for a bit, and as early as September, he had decided on Monroe as Eustace's replacement. This would allow Madison to continue to have Monroe's valued counsel nearby, while Monroe would also be able to claim some credit for the successful prosecution of the war effort. However, Monroe couldn't be expected to run the State Department in addition to the War Department, so Madison started trying to find a replacement for Monroe in state. He apparently at one point decided on the idea of inviting former President Thomas Jefferson to head the State Department again, which really would have been an odd turn of events. A former president now serving another president. But they but they did have like a kind of nebulous notion of like what it would mean to be a post-president, right? And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I always, I, I mean, it, that I remember reading once and thinking like, wow, that would have been crazy, but probably wouldn't have felt that way to them. You know, when you think 15 years later when, John Quincy Adams will like eagerly go back to Congress. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, I think they just had this different idea of like what, what we could or couldn't do outside of it. But yeah, it does strike us as pretty crazy. Biden all of a sudden called up, you know, Bill Clinton, you're going to head the state department. Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing what now? <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially that, that trio, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe, because even though Jefferson was out of power at this point, they were still in close conversation and still consulting together. So it's not as out there of an idea as no. 
we would think of. But Jefferson was also, he was kind of ready to stay in retirement. He had, he had had his time in Washington. He was done. Also, it was seen as maybe being a little too impolitic to have three prominent Virginians in three important federal offices. So they changed tactics and Comptroller of the Treasury Richard Rush was asked to step in temporarily at the State Department while in December 1812, Monroe took over as the acting Secretary of War. However, Madison and Monroe soon learned that there was a staunch opposition to Monroe assuming leadership of the War Department on a permanent basis because Federalists were still stinging over that that matter of the Henry letters. They were like, you really spent all that money from the State Department to try and take us down? Yeah, we're going to make sure that you don't get what you want. And with Monroe's confirmation, far from a sure deal, the two had to do a bit of a rethink. So Monroe was already in at the State Department. Maybe they need to think of a Secretary of War. In the meantime, Monroe did serve as you know, this acting Secretary of War, and he drafted a report outlining his proposals for the expansion of Army forces, quote, for coastal defense and for the offensive operations planned for the summer of 1813. He set into motion a new push to invade Canada, which was an invasion that he hoped to lead himself if he couldn't take control of the War Department. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> And you had mentioned him before, um, historian Tim McGrath, and his biography of Monroe says, quote, Monroe lit a fire under the War Department staff. So he went in, he was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I'm not William Eustace. I actually know what I'm talking about here. So he was trying to get things going and also trying to set himself up for a potential generalship leading the charge into Canada finally convinced that Monroe's chances of becoming Secretary of War on a permanent basis were slim, Madison appointed John Armstrong of New York to the office, and after he was confirmed, Armstrong assumed office on February 13, 1813, while Monroe returned to work at the State Department. Now, of course, we'll talk about Armstrong more in his episode, but for our purposes, we need to know that Armstrong and Monroe were like oil and water. They quickly grew to despise one another. Given that Monroe had been denied control of the War Department, Madison started to think, okay, well, Monroe really does want this commission. And so he was going to give him his desired field commission as a lieutenant general in command of the Northern Army. Armstrong, however, also wanted a field commission <laughs> because he was just as ambitious as Monroe. He wanted to use the glory of being in battle and leading as a general, to help him in his pursuit of higher office. And so realizing that Monroe posed a threat to those ambitions, Armstrong was able to talk Madison out of such a high commission for Monroe. Madison did offer Monroe a commission as a brigadier general, but the Secretary of State declined as he felt it was beneath him. Then Armstrong starts angling for the position of lieutenant general should Congress create it, and Monroe got word of that. And Monroe was like, I see what you're doing there. You're denying me the commission because you want it yourself. All right, buddy. Two can play at this game. 
And so again, this is one of those big rivalries in the cabinet. And we'll talk a bit more about that as we go along. But meanwhile, Monroe received a favorable report from St. Petersburg. And mentioned him earlier, U.S. Minister to Russia at that point, John Quincy Adams, sent back word of the Russian Tsar's offer to mediate a peaceful resolution to the war with Britain. So Monroe, as Secretary of State, drafted instructions for the Peace Commission that Monroe and Madison decided upon, which would be composed of Adams, along with Secretary of the Treasury Albert Gallatin, and Senator James A. Bayard, Federalist from Delaware. Once this commission set off, the fate of the peace process was largely in their hands. You know, they were guided at that point by the instructions that Monroe had prepared. But with communication being what it was, they really couldn't have much direct effect on the negotiations in Europe. So they just had to trust them. They, of course, would send further instructions, receive reports. But this would be more of a waiting game to see what was happening with those negotiations. And meanwhile, Monroe had some other things on his mind. Because in addition to the illness of President Madison and Vice President Elbridge Gerry that summer, Monroe also had received a report in July 1813 that British ships were seen on the Potomac River. Now, Armstrong dismissed this report. He did call out the militia just in case, but Monroe took this threat seriously and rode with a detachment down the banks of the Potomac in Maryland to see for himself what was going on. There was, indeed, a British force there, and Monroe and the troops with him came upon a group of British soldiers attacking Maryland militiamen, and Monroe and this force that was with him helped to drive the British off. The British ships soon had to turn back because they discovered that the Potomac was too shallow for them to go all the way upriver to Washington, and so this plan was put away with. They they were like, we'll scrap this. We'll figure out something else. But, you know, again, just one of those points, thinking of the Secretary of State riding out with troops and taking on the British. And he would return to Washington. But Armstrong left the city shortly afterwards. And again, we'll talk more about this in Armstrong's episode, but he received permission from Madison to proceed to the Northern Front to see how things were going on the ground there. Now, Monroe was left in Washington. The deputy left in charge of the War Department, Daniel Parker, had been instructed to communicate any major decisions with President Madison or Secretary Monroe while the War Secretary was absent from the Capitol. Madison, however, was still recovering from a bout of illness. So he was back at Montpelier, and thus there was only one person for Parker to turn to, Secretary of State Monroe. And Monroe took this opening as an invitation to just take over the War Department. And as noted by Armstrong Byer for C. Edward Skeen, quote, soon arranged for all the military correspondence of the War Department to be routed to him for review. Again from Skeen, quote, Monroe may have been encouraged in his belief that he was charged with an oversight of the War Department by a letter sent to him by the President in September 1813, asking him to forward the plans for military operations in the South. But when President Madison returns in October and realizes, hey, why is all the mail for the War Department going to the State (laughs) Department? Why is it on Monroe's desk? 
what is going on here? He has to go ahead and say, Monroe, send the correspondence back. You're not in charge of the War Department. Armstrong also heard about this, and you can imagine, he was none too pleased with Monroe taking over his department while he was away. So, again, those, those two, those tensions are just continuing to build. As the war dragged on, President Madison and Secretary of State Monroe could only wait for news from the Peace Commission. They finally learned in December 1813 that the British had rejected the Russian Tsar's offer to mediate, but they did offer direct negotiations. Madison quickly agreed to the offer. And a new set of instructions was sent to the Peace Commission in Europe. Furthermore, the president had decided to add two more commissioners to the delegation. Speaker of the House Henry Clay and Jonathan Russell, who had prior to the war served as Charge d'Affaires in London. Now, with this promising development, the president and his chief advisor Monroe would be on the lookout for any new reports from Europe. But again, there was just little that they could do back in Washington to really influence the diplomacy. Meanwhile, Armstrong's standing in the administration went from bad to worse because in mid-June 1814, a new British fleet arrived in the Chesapeake, and it was clear that this was an invasion force. At least, it was clear to everybody except John Armstrong. The Secretary of War again dismissed calls from Monroe and others to action. Seeing no movement from his cabinet colleague, Monroe prepared a report for the defenses of Washington, D.C., but the president rejected Monroe's request to have it published in the pro-administration newspaper in Washington. Madison did, however, establish the 10th Military District on July 2nd, which would encompass the region, and William Winder was named as Brigadier General in charge of the district. Now, we'll learn more about this in Armstrong's episode. Of course, you know he was heavily involved in this. But the Secretary of War did everything he could to not support Winder's efforts to prepare for the defense of Washington. Armstrong was convinced that the British would strike Baltimore and not Washington. So he was like, why are we wasting efforts on defending D.C.? We really need to think about Baltimore. On August 18, 1814, news came that the British were in southern Maryland, had landed a force of around 4,000 to 5,000, in Benedict, Maryland, and so it seemed like they were on the way. But Armstrong continued to insist, despite all this evidence, that the British were targeting Baltimore. Monroe was having none of this. He went into action. He, first, he sent his family off to Virginia for safekeeping. Then he mounted a horse and led a force out of Washington to rendezvous with Winder's force. Madison soon arrived on the scene and joined in a council of war on the morning of August 23rd. Madison afterwards told Monroe, quote, I fear not much can be done more than has been done. And while the president, accompanied by Armstrong and Secretary of the Navy William Jones, proceeded back to Washington, Monroe traveled to Bladensburg that evening to see the defenses there. Now, as noted in his episode, the former Attorney General William Pinckney was also present at Bladensburg. And we'll see more of this in the narrative series, but the Battle of Bladensburg was an unmitigated disaster, and news of the American defeat traveled fast. When Monroe arrived back in Washington, he, quote, found it a ghost town. After conferring with Madison and other top administration and military officials, most everyone scattered for the winds, 
all except Monroe. Monroe stayed in Washington long enough to see the first buildings go up in flames as the British marched in, and then he crossed the Potomac into Virginia. The next couple of days would be a mad rush to locate where government officials were and gathering intelligence, but finally, on the evening of August 27th, Monroe accompanied President Madison and Attorney General Richard Rush to Washington to return, because Washington had, of course, been abandoned by the British by this point, and the three found a decimated city. Most of the government buildings, including the President's House, the U.S. Capitol, and the State, War, and Navy Department building, had been destroyed. And this is one of those points in presidential history that just, you know, you just can't imagine the Capitol is gone. You know, and then the, you know, recurring damage for the the executive mansion. And I mean, it makes for a great story. You know, whenever I talk about this with students, they always, that part is pretty gripping. You know, you've seen, you know, in recent years where they had like White House down or Olympus has fallen and it's gripping to us to see like, oh my God, what would happen? But yeah, for it to actually have taken place. And uh, it is pretty crazy that that did come to pass, but you know, when you see the White House now, you know, and they, they still have a couple of the, the remnants of that, like the smoke damage in some places where I think it is important to kind of say, like, this has happened before, right? Like, this yeah. can happen if, if things go go the wrong way. So, yeah, just a very gripping part of our history, I guess, uh, that we sometimes forget with the War of 1812. Yeah. And, you know, thinking of Monroe and playing such a key role, being so involved. and This is something that, especially with folks who study Monroe, come back to because, I mean, he was he was trying to hold everything together. He was trying to rally the defense and trying to figure out what to do in the aftermath. But Monroe's actions in the lead up to the burning of Washington, though lauded by some historians, have also been criticized by others, including Armstrong's biographer Skeen, who notes as follows, quote, Monroe's actions did attract favorable notice but they were hardly beneficial to the American cause. From beginning to end, from the scouting activities to his placement of troops on the battlefield at Bladensburg to his assumption of the War Department and the military command of the district, his actions do him little credit and may be aptly termed ill-advised meddling. But folks at the time looked at this and they were like, okay, well, at least he was doing something. Armstrong, meanwhile, was being reviled and, quote, discounted as a traitor. With the return to the nation's capital, Madison took charge again, and Armstrong soon turned in his resignation. But this put Madison back in that place. He needs a secretary of war. And again, he turns to Monroe as acting secretary. Now, having been in this position before, Monroe at first objected, but the president made it clear, we've got to think about Baltimore now, because yes, the British are gone from here. Now they're making roads up to Baltimore. We need to plan for that defense. I need you. And so, as noted by McGrath, quote, as devastating as the events of August were, September began with an attitude of defiance. They may have burned Washington, but we are not letting them take Baltimore. And so Monroe worked closely with Secretary of the Navy Jones, and the two began plotting for the defense of Baltimore while Monroe also supervised defensive measures being put in place on the Potomac. And with the victory at Baltimore, they were successful. They successfully held Baltimore. Monroe felt himself emboldened enough 
to ask for his status as Secretary of War to be made permanent. Though Madison was originally reluctant, Monroe pressed the issue to the point that the president sent in his name to the Senate, who quickly confirmed the appointment by a vote of 24 to 2. But with him now in the War Department, the question became, who takes over the State Department? Madison had initially thought of inviting noted diplomat Rufus King to become Secretary of State, and King was a Federalist, so this was hoped that this may bridge the gap, this may be a unity government. However, Monroe was not behind this idea. He was like, no, I'm not turning it over to King. So Madison turned his attention to New York Governor Daniel D. Tompkins. Tompkins, however, declined the appointment, and thus Madison was forced to ask Monroe to serve as acting Secretary of State as well as Secretary of War until he could find someone to take the post. As noted by McGrath, quote, Monroe's acceptance of both positions stemmed as much from his wellspring of devotion to country and loyalty to Madison as from personal ambition. And again, this is one of those points. It's like, seriously, you're, you're taking over two departments and two of the most important departments with the most going on. (laughs) And with noted tensions, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like you haven't been there before, but yeah, it's like, uh, can't get enough of (laughs) that that kind of, uh, just, yeah, I can't think of another word other than tension, just hanging over the entire situation. But also it it makes you wonder, like, wasn't there anybody else? You know, why, why was it just, we're going to keep coming back to the same wall of, you know, certain people, but yeah, this uh, limited options, I guess. And meanwhile, Jefferson was against this whole thing. He did not want Monroe to move to the War Department. He wrote to his protege on January 1st, 1815, quote, I much regretted your acceptance of the War Department. Not that I knew a person who I think would con- better conduct it, but conduct it ever so wisely it will be a sacrifice of yourself. Were an angel from heaven to undertake that office, all our miscarriages would be ascribed to him. Raw troops, no troops, insubordinate militia, want of arms, want of money, want of provisions, all will be charged to want of management in you. So Jefferson was saying, you just messed up politically. You're going to be blamed for everything because now you're that guy. But for his part, Monroe was committed to finding a way to successfully prosecute the war and admitted to Jefferson that he was willing at this point, quote, that I have been willing to adopt almost any plan rather than encounter the risk of the overthrow of our whole system, which has been so obvious and imminent. Indeed, at the prompting of Senator William Branch Giles, Democratic Republican from Virginia, Monroe sent in a report in which he advocated for a standing army, quote, of 100,000 provided by conscription as well as volunteers. And this was a sharp turn from Democratic-Republican ideology. You know, Democratic-Republicans were all about the citizen soldiers volunteering, not being conscripted into this large army. And... Monroe was actually using Hamiltonian logic to say that this was constitutional with the necessary and proper clause. And so this is a big shift, but it also shows how desperate the situation was and that Monroe at that point was saying, I will do anything to save the United States. 
It quickly became clear, though, that the conscription plan was not going to fly with Congress. But thankfully for Monroe and the administration, they did not have to press the issue any further because on February 3, 1815, news arrived in Washington, D.C. of General Andrew Jackson's victory over the British in New Orleans. And then 10 days later, word reached the capital of the Treaty of Ghent, which proposed an end to the war and the restoration of status quo antebellum. Serving as both Secretary of State and Secretary of War, it was Monroe who received both notices and then in turn informed President Madison. So the war is now over. Monroe survived. The nation survived. But as noted by McGrath, quote, the war had taken a physical toll on Monroe. Friends were aghast at his appearance and wondered if he had contracted some disease. Haggard and gaunt, his clothes hung on him like a scarecrow's rags. It was becoming very clear Monroe could not run both of these departments at the same time for much longer. And with the conclusion of the war and no more prospect of martial glory, Monroe decided it was time to turn over the War Department and go back to his full-time role at the State Department. So on March 15, 1815, he relinquished control to Acting Secretary of War Alexander Dallas, who was also serving as Secretary of the Treasury. Now, there's not too much more to talk about in terms of Monroe's tenure as Secretary of State. It was really focused on trying to deal with the ever-shifting diplomatic situation in Europe with Napoleon's exile on Elba and then the Hundred Days and then his second exile. There was so much going on in Europe, and it was really just trying to process who, okay, who's in control of what now? Who are we talking to again? There is one more matter to discuss. At the very beginning of the war, on August 25th, 1812, with the encouragement of the British government, Algerine Corsairs seized an American merchant ship, the Edwin. As the U.S. was focused more on the war effort against Britain, it wasn't a situation like in the Jefferson administration where they could send an entire squadron to release the Americans held captive. From afar, the Madison administration did what it could to negotiate. And to that end, in early 1813, Madison appointed a new consul to nearby Tunis named Mordecai Manuel Noah. As part of his diplomatic mission, Noah was to serve as an unofficial U.S. agent to seek the release of the captives in Algiers. One of the main reasons that Noah was given this mission according to historian Frederick Lanier, is that Noah was Jewish. As Lanier describes, quote, Madison and Monroe knew that the Jews were the most influential group in Algiers. President Madison did not know Mordecai Noah when he presented himself for a Barbary Council post. He was young and untested, but because of his Jewish faith, Noah was seen as being somebody who could possibly negotiate things, and get these captives back. Now, suffice it to say, you know, we're not going to go into details, but Noah's mission was unsuccessful, and he also hadn't been so discreet about this secret mission. And so, when Commodore Stephen Decatur came over to the Mediterranean shortly after the end of the War of 1812 with a squadron to actually resolve the situation, he carried with him a letter from Secretary of State Monroe for Noah. This letter dated April 25th, 1815, went as such. Quote, Sir, at the time of your appointment as consul at Tunis, 
it was not known that the religion which you profess would form any obstacle to the exercise of your consular functions. Recent information, however, on which entire reliance may be placed, proved that it would produce a very unfavorable effect, in consequence of which the president has deemed it expedient to revoke your commission. So we have primary evidence to indicate that not only was Noah's religion not seen as an impediment, as Monroe was suggesting here, but it was a strength to his initial appointment. We also have a letter from Madison to Monroe the day prior to the letter that was revoking his commission, in which the president states that, quote, Tunis will be vacated by the Jew. In recalling Noah, it may be well to rest the reason pretty much on the ascertained prejudices of the Turks against his religion, and it having become public that he was a Jew, a circumstance which it was understood at the time of his appointment might be awkward. So basically we've got anti-Semitism here and Noah being made to take the fall for this unsuccessful mission and it being, you know, clearly they're saying, because you're Jewish, we're firing you. Yeah, it gives you good insight into just how rampant anti-Semitism was. Yeah. You know, when you talk to students, I always want to make the case that, like, it's been with us from the beginning, right? Like, ancient times, and we don't always think of it as being as insidious as it was, but you could go through almost every one of our early presidents, and they would have some evidence of, you know, talking like that, and, you know, just the, the results bear out, you know, that we don't have a... Jew appointed to the Supreme Court. We don't have a Jew uh, uh, included on the um, in the cabinet for a hundred years after this, right? So, um, or at least people who are um, professed Jews, I guess you should yeah. say. Yeah, that's the thing that I I was not aware of this, but the, yeah, that's a, a kind of interesting window into just how widespread that that really would have been. But like you said, you know, nothing in his conduct bears out this idea that it was you know prohibitive of his being able to carry out the duties of the office but you know just those prejudices are are that rampant absolutely and and the fact that the administration and you know obviously Monroe as secretary of state agreed to this and especially with him working so closely with Madison they agreed to basically exploit his religion when it was to their benefit and then use it as an excuse against him when they decided they didn't want him in the post anymore. So definitely one of those things to consider whenever we get to our evaluation at the end. But like I said, the, you know, the last points of his tenure as secretary of state, that it was really just this kind of wrap up from the war of 1812. And it was towards the end of Madison's second term. He had already decided he wasn't running for re-election. And so there was a bit of a battle over who was going to replace him because Madison really wanted Secretary Monroe to succeed him. But there was a growing opposition to this idea of yet another Virginian becoming the fifth president. It seemed like this was just becoming an office for the old Dominion. And so the opposition to a Monroe nomination rallied around Secretary of the Treasury, William H. Crawford of Georgia. But this would not be enough to deny Monroe the nomination of the Democratic-Republican caucus 
which he won by 85 votes to Crawford's 54. And in the election, the result was even more of a landslide because Monroe won 183 electoral votes from 16 states to Federalist candidate Rufus King's 34 electoral votes from just three states. And thus, just like Madison had done before him, Monroe leaves the cabinet on March 4, 1817, and assumes office as president of the United States, which, of course, we will talk in more detail about when we get to the Monroe presidency series. But just in a high-level overview of his presidency, he really inherited a rather stable situation both domestically and internationally. In another break from his predecessor, though, you know, and this was this was a different situation than Madison had come into office with. Madison's cabinet had really been a revolving door for his eight years versus Monroe's cabinet, which was by and large stable. He'd retained the same folks at state, treasury, and war for his entire presidency. And so this was really interesting, you know, that there is this big difference, such big differences between the Madison presidency and the Monroe presidency. And by the time Monroe took up residency in the president's house in Washington, the Federalist Party was pretty much gone as a national force, and the Democratic-Republican faction had largely lined behind Monroe. And so, again, like we said, as we were talking about Washington, Monroe took this idea from Washington to do some national tours, to actually get out in front of the people. And this is, it's just, it's so fascinating that we have this again, and we have Monroe becoming this, seen as kind of this unifying figure. And, you know, we've heard of the era of good feelings, which, of course, we realize that's an oversimplification. There was other stuff going on. But there was, in large part, the sense of things were going well, and Monroe was an able administrator. But of course, we know that the Panic of 1819, which was the first serious economic downturn in the history of the United States, happened under his watch. And there really wasn't much that the government at that point could do for the situation. But unlike some of his successors, in times of economic downturns, Monroe largely escaped criticism for the Panic of 1819. We also see the debate over the statehood of Missouri, and more critical to that was whether, you know, what was going to be the state of slavery in Missouri. And this is one of those points in the lead up to the Civil War that is just so so pivotal. And Monroe, this was a large part of his tenure as president and a very challenging point for the nation. And largely, you know, it's certainly you know, being done in Congress, but, you know, there isn't necessarily so much from Monroe kind of weighing in one direction or another and, you know, himself having owned slaves. You, you got to imagine weighs into that in some fashion, but yeah, I always point out to students, like two of the biggest things that happen on his administration, he doesn't really have too much control over or isn't really driving the the cart. So it's an interesting kind of part of him. Which one thing that he did have a role in, even though there is some dispute about how exactly his role worked in this, 
was the Florida situation. So, you know, Monroe, along with Madison and Jefferson before him, really wanted Florida. They wanted to acquire Florida. They felt that part of it had already come over with the Louisiana Purchase, but France and Spain had denied that. They said, no, it's just Louisiana that you've got. But we finally see under Monroe that Florida becomes a part of the U.S. But of course, that's in part, you've got Andrew Jackson who invades Florida. He ends up with the two British citizens basically trying and executing them. There's so much controversy around it. And this point of, well, what did Monroe actually authorize him to do? Take over Florida or what? But this leads to the negotiations of the Adams-Onez Treaty, which transfers Florida to the U.S. So he finally sees that happen under his watch and did have a role in that. We also, you know, in the Monroe administration, see things becoming better with Anglo-American relations. New treaties are signed. More things are being agreed upon between the two. We see outreach to the new nations in Latin America. And it's just a time where it just seems like so much is happening and the administration has some role in that, but it's also seen as, you know, like you're saying, these events are happening, but how much is Monroe really doing with them? He would win re-election without challenge in 1820, but by the time the 1824 election came around, he decided to not seek a third term, continue that two-term limit, but it was a free-for-all. There were so many people competing to become president and so many people from his cabinet who were competing to become president. But Monroe was able to retire. At the time of his retirement, the Monroes resided at his estate, Monroe Hill, which is now owned by the University of Virginia and serves as a residential college for the university. They would, however, spend a good portion of their retirement in an estate in Northern Virginia called Oak Hill. But his shaky finances would force him to sell off the Highland Estate in Charlottesville. Monroe was elected as a delegate to the Virginia Constitutional Convention in 1829, and he would, for the first couple of months, serve as its presiding officer before his ill health forced him to leave the convention on December 8th. After suffering from ill health for years, Elizabeth Monroe passed away at Oak Hill on September 23, 1830, and James moved in with their daughter Elizabeth, and her husband in New York City. But it would only be a little over nine months later before James Monroe would pass away on July 4th, 1831, at the age of 73, from heart failure and tuberculosis. Monroe was the last of the three presidents to date to pass away on Independence Day. And he was originally buried in the governor family's vault in the New York City Marble Cemetery, but in 1858, his body was reinterred in Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia, and his tomb is designated as a U.S. National Historic Landmark, which, Joe, I know you will get to in Season 3 of your podcast. For sure. One of the more iconic of the grave sites, though, looks like a birdcage, and the first time I ever went, and for a lot of people, it was a black kind of structure, but um, had like gratings so that you could see the sarcophagus. 
Now they've repainted it. I think this happened in 2015. And since then, it's beautiful. Like, I think it's, it's a really beautiful, but it's very divisive. If <laughs> you talk to different people who do presidential grave sites, either you love it or you are not a fan. I'm a love it. I think it's really cool. And with that, that is the wife of James Monroe. So initial impressions, Joe. You know, one of the things that really stands out to me about Monroe is I feel like he's a striver. I He's not the brilliant writer, communicator that his two most recent predecessors and the two that we kind of grade him off of, Jefferson and Madison. And it'd be really hard to follow up that act. And at least, you know, with students say, you know, one writes the Declaration of Independence and then the other writes the Constitution and the follow-up act, you know, it's no, it would be really hard for anybody to measure up to that. But you do get this kind of drop-off with James Monroe, not necessarily due to anything that he could have really controlled. You know, his life was upended by his father's death and having to go live with his uncle. And I feel like he was always, in some ways, playing catch-up. And any time that he could have been spending studying is going to be completely upended by the revolution. And so he's kind of thrust into these different roles by circumstance and answers the call every time he's asked. Might not love it each time. You know, when we think about uh, George Washington's administration or when Jefferson sends him to London and Paris and, you know, doing all of these errands, basically, but he does it, right? Like he shows up, does the job, and I think does as good a job as can be. He's one of those who I would say is probably better for the things he does leading up to the presidency than really anything that happens on his watch, right? Like the the thing that bears his name, the Monroe Doctrine, he really doesn't have a role in kind of drawing out. That's, that's all John Quincy Adams. But I think he does everything he can leading up to that to put himself in that position so that he can be really able president in the old conception of the office where you're basically keeping things running and hoping nothing disastrous happens. And I think his whole life kind of led up to, to that performance of the job. Absolutely. And I think this is the perfect time to look at our first category. So the whole picture round, this round looks at the overall career and character of this cabinet member. And each of us can award up to 10 points maximum. And yeah, it's one of those things like you look at his entire career and it's, there's a lot there. You know, this is somebody who starts out in Virginia, who ends up, you know, he's a part of the Virginia Ratification Convention. He's a member of the the Congress. He's in the Revolutionary War, but then with the new government, he becomes a senator. He becomes the U.S. Minister to France. He holds all these diplomatic posts. He's governor of Virginia. He's in all these places. And then he goes on to his cabinet career, Secretary of State, Secretary of War, President. It's a long career. There is so much to it. However, how much of it is him really influencing things versus him kind of carrying the torch? You know, his close relationships with Jefferson and Madison, 
the three are really talked about in connection. And compared to those two, Monroe seems to pale. And why is that? And is that deserved? You know, I definitely think he looks the part and that that goes a long way at that time. I mean, as shallow as that might seem, but, you know, I think a lot of times he got a lot of recognition in these, you know, honors. And like I said, you know, a lot of it is showing up. (laughs) Uh, If you want to go back to the old quote, you know, most of life is, you know, just about showing up. And I think with Monroe, he does that. And as he said, like, you know, when you read the resume, it's a, a pretty stacked resume. But how much of it was him driving the cart versus him, like I said, just being there and uh, being tapped for those positions? And that because he was wealthy seeming, because he was um, in that old boys network of Virginia, that he was the one that they would look to. I don't know that there's too much that he did to set himself up for it going based solely on merit. If, you know, you're looking at an average person from New York at the time versus James Monroe in Washington's cabinet or when Jefferson taps him for those positions, a lot of that was based on their own personal relationship with him. And that goes a long way with him. So, yeah, I'm I'm always just a little bit less impressed by him in, in that way. But, again, I do give him credit for when he is asked to to fill in these positions, he does do them and does the best that he can. So there's like a grading on a curve, I guess, with him. And so what would you think in terms of points for this category? For overall? Yeah, for overall, kind of his overall career. I would, I'm, I'm between like a seven and an eight. I'm always struck by like not winning the that first house race, not his fault. <laughs> um, and then the te- the tension with him and George Washington. But then, you know, post that really does kind of fill in almost every job that he needs. So, yeah, I, I probably I feel like I'm being really generous, but I think I'll go with an eight. And I think I, because I was kind of thinking along those lines, I think I'm going to go with a seven point five. Okay. Just because it's. Yeah, I mean, you look at his resume and he, you know, this is definitely, you can't say that this wasn't a great career. I mean, he gets to the presidency. He has served in so many key points and he had successes in those. And actually, I think I talked myself up to an eight because also thinking of the Louisiana Purchase, you know, thinking of these these key territorial acquisitions and that this becomes a part of his legacy, you know, even though Livingston had already been working on this, it really was Monroe coming over and having that key relationship with the administration and just saying, Jefferson, you don't need a constitutional amendment to do this. Just, just do the thing. So yeah, I'm going to say an eight because I mean, this is, this is a really good career, but he doesn't get those, that those full marks just because he does the job well, he also doesn't necessarily distinguish himself and make it his own. It's more carrying on and just doing what's right instead of going 
that extra step beyond. Yeah, there's nothing that's specifically or um, especially distinguishing once he's in those positions. I'm struck by how much of it is like making up the job as we go along. As you said, you know, the State Department, like it wasn't like it was a clearly defined role and then he gets to make his own mark on it. I feel like a lot of it was added to the job as he's doing it. And then like, can you also be doing this? And I forgot when, until you mentioned that he had served as governor two distinct times. Right. And that's pretty impressive to me. They're one term. And so the limitations that would be inherent to, you know, what you could actually do with like a, a big agenda or, or, um, I don't imagine that they, they approach those jobs in the same way that we think of them today. But yeah, I think eight is fair. Yeah. So that starts them off very strong with a 16. But now we're going to zoom in a bit on his time in the cabinet, in our go-get around. This round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And just like with the last category, we can each award up to 10 points. So with Go-Getter, I am actually going to be, again, fairly generous with him here in that extraordinary circumstances and his immediate predecessors as Secretary of State really didn't have this international component in the way of having an actual war. And so if we bring in having to serve two roles at the same time, I feel like that's extraordinary as well. And then the things that you said that you know, really kind of were presented to him. Again, I I think I'm more generous to him as a pre-president than I am to him as a president. So again, I I think I'm going to be very generous with him here. I'm between an eight and a nine, actually. Uh, I can't imagine too many people being able to handle this situation like he did and then having to compete with himself in terms of the person who he thinks he should be honored as versus the way he's being presented a lot of people would have just like closed shop and said like find yourself a better or different secretary of state and instead he like keeps working with Madison a person he has a beef with i'm going to say 8.5 if I'll, I'll borrow from you the the decimal i'll say 8.5 and i think i'm going to be a little more generous i think i'm going to give him a 9 okay because and that's the thing in madison's presidency and of course you know the listeners were going to explore this more as we go along, but we've already seen in, in the Madison presidency, there is so much division and factionalism and competing interests in the cabinet and all these things going on. And you get when Monroe comes into the cabinet, something changes, you know, Madison finally gets a really good advisor. He gets that, trusted right-hand person who, you know, yeah, they may have a couple of disagreements here and there. He has to keep him from trying to take over the war department when somebody else is in the office. But by and large, Madison knows I can go to Monroe with anything and he's going to make it happen. And he does. And like you said, Joe, he held two cabinet posts at the same time. He was constantly shuffling for a good portion of his time in the cabinet between the state department and the war department. And neither of those alone are easy offices during a war, during an, during a war. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So 
you know, we can't deny he had a huge impact in the cabinet, in this administration. It can be argued, you know, and, and some folks like we talked about do that maybe he was a bit too meddling, but he certainly can't be accused of the obverse, which many of his cabinet colleagues in that cabinet were of doing too little. That's true. So, you know, he errs on the side of doing too much. So I think, you know, this is definitely a category to be generous to him in. But then we get to our hot seat round, which is where we discuss any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And we can take away up to 10 points each year. So I'm struck by the anti-Semitism that you spoke of. I'm also just really governed by his own personal kind of pettiness at certain points that I do feel in some ways undermined him and kept him from maybe elevating his stature a bit and maybe caused him to act out in certain ways that, that we can see. So we can take up, take away up to 10 points. Um, yes. I feel like I would take away, I feel like four is probably good. <laughs> Not to diminish anti-Semitism by any means, just to be clear. But I also am struck by the countervailing parts of it as well. One, that it's certainly not his alone. Like he is acting on behalf of James Madison. He could have, you know, stepped in and said something or done something. Being a slave owner obviously also comes into account. And so I'd say that would be, you know, certainly something to to be considerate of. But how much of it is that he's like a product of his time and really did, like I, I keep going back to, he didn't get to fulfill his education. He didn't get to fulfill his early years in the way that maybe would have counteracted some of that, hopefully. But when we look at some of the contemporaries, people like a John Quincy Adams, who was pretty steadfast at that exact same time on some of these topics, I think four is probably good. I think I'm going to go a little higher and I'm going to take away five points. You know, and, and we do have to take into account, and of course, with this being an abbreviated version of his history, we'll talk more about this when we get to his actual presidency series, but James... Monroe did enslave individuals throughout his life. So that's definitely something that we want to take into account. There's no quantifying that evil, but we do have to take it into account. Also the anti-Semitism, which even though it was a product of the time, it's also, we see other examples of people doing something different. So he, he had that opportunity and, you know, unfortunately he went that route, but then also this, and you said something, Joe, that I was thinking of as well. You have to wonder in all this scrambling and striving for, well, this is the position that I deserve. This is the position that I deserve. If he had taken more energy to, other pursuits instead of being so ambitious and proud, would we be able to speak 
to like we do a Jeffersonian policy or a, a Madisonian philosophy. Could we have done that with Monroe? Instead, we're left with this person who's just ambitious for office and in some cases is willing to do whatever it takes and to go against people, even some people that he's friends with or has been close allies with in order to get to that next office, that next post. So we do have to take that into account. Also with that and kind of a product of that, his animosity with John Armstrong and that division within the cabinet, you know, that's a negative. That's, and especially at a time of war to have cabinet members with this personal animosity against one another is perilous. So I'm taking away five points. And so combined that gets him negative nine points there, but he is left with 24.5 points at the end of these rounds. And he's going to pick up a few more because next is our tenure of office, which is the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. Now, a couple of things to note here. We don't count time as an acting cabinet member. We also have an interesting instance here where he actually served in two full-time positions in the cabinet, but where these overlapped, they're unduplicated in our respects. You know, it wasn't that he served as Secretary of War and then served as Secretary of State. It was at the same time. He was just a cabinet member for that time, just in two posts. So we just count that as one continuum. Interesting. So with that, and just to note that, so he served as Secretary of State from April 6th, 1811 to March 4th, 1817. And he served full-time as Secretary of War from September 27th, 1814 to March 2nd, 1815. But with that time in the cabinet, that continuous time in the cabinet, rounding up, he gets six points total here. And he earns a couple of bonus points because he did serve in more than one full-time cabinet position. So we give him a bonus point for that. He did not serve in more than one presidential administration, so he doesn't earn that one. But he earns the coveted one bonus point because he actually became president. So finally, we have him at a total of 32.5. And so that's pretty respectable. That is respectable. Yeah. But we have to ask ourselves one more question. Joe, after all I've shared about James Monroe's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the Cabinet All-Stars? Cabinet All-Stars. How many are you planning to have as a Cabinet All-Star? As many as we decide upon. Okay, so I just have to share that my dad and I go back and forth on the idea of an all-star. You know, are you exemplary? Are you great for the time? So it's all-star, but not Hall of Fame, which is an important distinction I'm drawing in my mind. <sighs> okay, so here's my thinking. I, I, I would, I'm, there's a part of me that's saying yes, and mainly because acting as he did during a time of war, answering the call, doing nothing really negative during that post. 
as as Secretary of State and Secretary of War during a time of war. I'm just wondering who else would even be able to compete with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm just thinking of the kind of overarching panoply of different cabinet officials. I feel like he'd be on that cusp, right? Not, neither, um, I, I wouldn't just out of pocket say no. I'm just wondering how high I would put him. This is, it's a really interesting idea. Like would, whether or not he would go. Well, and, and that's the thing. And, and like you said, being able to hold both of those posts at a time of war when we've already seen so many folks in the series who just with one post, not in a time of war, didn't do it well. And the fact that he was able to really keep things going in these difficult times, there's definitely, you know, it's it's definitely not an outright no. Right. I'm just thinking too, at this point, when he takes this role, I would only argue as all-stars leading up to him, Jefferson, Hamilton, and maybe Madison. So, I mean, just in that alone. And then I'm trying to think of like the larger scale, like who else I would put up there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm honestly going to say, yeah, I think I would put him as a, as a all-star cabinet member. I I think we've got another Virginian going into getting a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars. I, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And like you said, and it'll be interesting to see once we get to his presidency, once we get to that series, you know, if we learn more, but it almost seems like his presidency is the, one of the least interesting points of his career. It's really more about that lead up to it. And especially his time in the cabinet I don't know that it always gets as much focus as we've given it here, but when you really start to look at it, there was so much going on and there are so many other people who would have crumbled under the pressure. And as you said, put his health on the line, right? Like it's like it's very notably physically engaged with what's going on. And yeah, you think like the, when we did our sliding doors moment where you know, if he hadn't recovered during the war or if he didn't meet John Marshall, but like here it's like, yeah, what would we have done if it had been someone not up to the, not up to the demand that it was going to take during the war of 1812 as we're being invaded, right? Like the one time we're actually invaded. And you did mention too, I, sh- I should have brought this into it, uh, taking command, right? Like literally going in and, you know, whether it was going to investigate where the British were on the Potomac. And yeah, I can't imagine too many other cabinet officials doing that. So yeah, yeah, I think I'm I'm even more certain. <laughs> and I'm sure that Monroe would tell us that he was deserving of this honor. Sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> so with that, we are at the end of our episode. Joe, I thank you so much for this conversation. This has been wonderful to finally get the opportunity to talk with you and to just geek out for a bit about presidential history and James Monroe. And this has just been wonderful. Yeah, I I love the community of different presidential nerds that we have found ourselves in. 
Um, there's a lot of great accounts out there, so I definitely recommend to anybody that you you know seek out not just uh, what Jerry and I do, but then just the other panoply of <laughs> different interests. And I think there is something to be said about looking into presidents, not because, and I think Jerry and I kind of share this, not because they're perfect people, but I think because in their imperfections, they re- reveal what we were as Americans at the time we elected them. And times and the demands that they put on these very normal men. James Monroe is a great example of a kind of average person who responds in an above average way at at the exact time our country needed. And if I can just do one shameless plug for my friends at the Monroe home in uh, Charlottesville, uh, Monroe's Highland, if you look up Monroe's Highland, this is one of the sites that is just remarkable to me in terms of their ability to kind of see, you know, what the narrative had been and keep digging, literally, where when I first went to visit, you would go into this home and it was called Ashlawn Highland at the time. And you could see literally where these two houses were joined together. And their narrative at the time was that Monroe had lived in a wing of this house that had been destroyed. And so the the other part was still standing what they've since uncovered, and I was there right after they made this discovery, was that there's an actual other home. And so the home that you get to tour is a guest house. And so they are still recontextualizing Monroe and his life. But also, if you're interested at all in public history and in preservation history, like this is an ongoing dialogue. And so definitely check out Monroe's Highland. But there's also the museum in Fredericksburg that you can check out. And then his home or his birthplace in Colonial Beach is, I think, the, the closest town to it. But all three of those are great Monroe sites. So definitely indulge that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, like you said, the the story of Highland has been so fascinating to keep up with because it really is, it helps us to understand there's still so much that we're discovering about history and even the physical history of sites, we're still learning. The story is still evolving. We're still trying to figure things out. And to see this work happen before our eyes is just really amazing. And absolutely, I agree. They're doing great work there. And it's it's wonderful to watch and see what's coming for folks who want to learn more about James Monroe by going to these physical historic sites. And so likewise, I'm to everybody who's listening. I recommend that you check out Joe's episodes already out there about the Monroe sites. Visiting the presidents is a great podcast. It's now on my regular rotation. And so I imagine that once you start listening, you will be too. And maybe I'll give you some ideas for travel coming up because there are presidential sites all over. So wherever you're going, there's probably going to be a site not too far away. So I highly recommend you checking it out. Sure. And I think there is something to be said too for getting to experience, you know, what these sites look like. And there is, I always feel a little bit more connected to the individual and they can be as far flung as, you know, Millard Fillmore sites and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, I think you're, you're in for a treat when it comes to being able to travel and get to see these sites. Absolutely. But with that, thank you so much, Joe. 
thank you to everybody who's listening. I hope you've all enjoyed learning a bit more about James Monroe and that this has given you a a taste of what's to come once we get to the Monroe Presidency Series. It's nice to kind of have this as a prelude to that, to be able to start thinking about Monroe. So hope you've enjoyed this. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.